Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so last week we talked about persecution. And we talked about how persecution has this way of um, fueling the early church and the spread of the gospel. The disciples in Acts 5 were beaten and placed in prison for preaching gospel. And their response in Acts 5.41 was that they rejoiced because to be counted excuse me, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus. And before we get into Acts 6 and 7, which is persecution to the fullest degree, Stephen is going to lose his life today. I want us to really consider why, um, why we should take these chapters seriously. Okay, if, if, if we're studying these scriptures in another part of the world, let's say the underground church in China, these things make a lot of sense in a way that they just don't make sense to us here today, okay? Because we live um, in a land that has just been blessed in such a way where we don't taste the kind of persecution that the church in other parts of the world taste. But what that can do to us is it can make us very, very lazy for the things that Jesus promises his church. And what I mean by that is we can rest on, on the, the grace that God has given us and just accept that it will always be that way and not be prepared for some of the things that God has promised will come towards his people. And what I mean by that primarily is persecution. What it does in the hearts of believers is it creates the, like the, the a lack of persecution creates Um, a love affair with this world. And it convinces us that because of where we live, because of the abundance of where we live, it lies to us in a sense where where it it tells us you can um, be a follower of Jesus and also love this world. You can love the things of this world. You can love what it has to offer. You can have all kinds of affairs with the things of this world. And it doesn't affect your relationship with Jesus. John 3.19, Jesus said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness more than light. What you have when the entire world is shouting at the top of their lungs, look at this wide gate that anyone can walk through. This is the path of happiness. This is the path of salvation. And sometimes pastors are in that crowd shouting, go this way, go through the widest gate. 
when that is the trajectory of the majority of society, and you have followers of Jesus doing what Jesus said, standing over here and saying, no, that is not the path. This is the path, this tiny little door. This is the, this is the way. That's not the way. That way leads to destruction. This way leads to eternal life. Eventually, when those two voices clash, the voices who are preaching go through the wide gate, eventually turn on the voices who are shouting the wide gate is destruction, go through the narrow gate, and the desire, the kingdom of darkness, is to start finding ways to shut that voice up. And when that happens, persecution. Now, why don't we see a ton of persecution where we live? I think part of it is because of God's grace, but I think part of it is because there's not many people actually saying that way is destructive. There's no persecution if nobody is saying that way is destructive. It's this way you need to go through. But the moment people start standing up and saying, what you all are saying is wrong. This is what's right. This is light. This is the way to go. The moment that starts transpiring, then persecution happens. So why am I harping on this? Why am I bringing this up? Because if you have watched how quickly society has changed just in the last 10 years, if you've watched how discussions online and in person have deteriorated just in two years because of a mask or a vaccine, I'm telling you that it will not take long if people start saying this is the only way for the voices in society to turn and start ramping up persecution. It is easy for us to think this isn't gonna happen to us and therefore not prepare for it. But if you look at the trajectory of just things in society and how quickly they have changed, I'm telling you, this is a thing we should start taking seriously because times are changing very quickly. And we don't live in a society right now that's gonna persecute, persecute you for being a Christian, but that, I'm telling you, is not always gonna be the case. And if by God's grace, we don't see it in our lifetime, praise God. But I'm convinced that our, at least our kids will start seeing it in their lifetime. And if you watch what happened to the church when the the one shouting, go through the wide gate, started telling the narrow gate, hey, you can't meet together anymore, it's not safe. You can't come to church, you have to stop doing that. And according to the latest Gallup poll, 30% of people who regularly attended churches when they were told to stop, stopped and still haven't come back I'm telling you that if you're not prepared when the persecution hits, there's gonna be big trouble. So why is this such a big issue? Why is this such a burden on my heart? Because I feel a real desire to prepare God's people, you, for anything that might come our way. And for the parents in this room, 
for us to start taking seriously the call God has given us to prepare our children for what is almost like it's coming their way, like it's inevitable. It is absolutely coming their way. Are we preparing the next generation for the persecution that exists in other parts of the world right now, or are we gonna continue to believe that that's probably never gonna touch our door? Look back two years ago and think about the things that we were convinced would never happen in our society and are currently happening today. Things change very quickly and I have a burden that I feel like is led by the Holy Spirit for us to start taking seriously what we believe and what's coming and being prepared to be able to say, Lord Jesus, I belong to you and that means whatever you want to do with my life, I'm okay with even dying for you. Let's get into the message. Acts chapter six, let's start in verse one. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now what are Hellenists? Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. When Alexander the Great came in and started spreading Greek culture everywhere, it affected every area of society all around the world, even Jewish people. And so within um, Israel, within Jewish culture, you had a split, people who are committed to old school Jewish beliefs and customs and people who are committed to God and the Jewish religion, but, but ultimately, culturally, they're Greek to the point where they would not even read uh, the Torah in Hebrew, they would read the Torah in Greek. Now you've got both of these people, they have followed Jesus, they're both um, serving Jesus and they're meeting in the same church and this racial tension is erupting within the church because now the widows, the church is serving the widows, making sure that they're fed, they're coming to eat and preference is being given to the Jewish followers and not the Hellenistic followers. So verse two, the 12 summoned the full group of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let's pause right there. And we know that this book is written by Luke and he's introducing a couple important points about the early church before he introduces the key player we're gonna start studying today, which is Stephen. And the key points he's trying to introduce is that in the early church, unity was everywhere. We've seen that twice in his understanding in the first five chapters of the church. There's unity everywhere. Everybody's on the same page. People are even selling property so they can, they can share and make sure all the needs are met. Everybody's on the same page, but everybody's still in the middle of transformation. <clears throat> and what that means is there is unity in the church, but there's also people who are still prone to sin. So you can have a church who's all on the same page and people in the church who are still struggling with things from their old past life. 
The second thing that he tries to introduce is that the Hebrew sense of justice was playing a large role in the early church. We talked about this when we studied the book of Isaiah. There's this Hebrew word when we were studying Isaiah called mizpat, and it's a Hebrew word that it it means justice. But the Hebrew sense for justice is not like the American sense of justice. The American sense of justice, in our definition of the word, would almost exclusively have some legal context. If this person did this thing, the justice would be that this person receives this other thing. That's our sense of justice. But the Hebrew sense of justice is different. The Hebrew sense of justice is that all things within the community are structured in such a way that everybody is on the same page and we are all working towards the same goal of community. And there are no rules or norms or laws set up within the culture that would benefit only one person and not someone else. There are no bylaws set up so that the only person who could serve on a board is a person who owns this much land. That's the opposite of biblical justice. Biblical justice is this sense that we are enacting rules and laws and norms where everybody is desiring this end goal of community and everybody uh, is a part of the family. And you see this when you, um, when they in verse one and two start deciding how they're gonna handle um, uh, Hellenistic widows being fed. No one's saying, well, they need to get to the back of the line because they don't even, they don't even know how to read the Bible in Hebrew. No, they're saying everybody's on the same page. We're not gonna, we're, we're gonna establish the sense of justice. We, we, we trust what Isaiah was doing or what Isaiah was saying and we're following this moment. And so this issue that was, that was raised to us, it needs to be resolved. We can't just dismiss it and say it's not a big deal. And one of the ways that we dismiss it, and this is the third thing he's trying to bring up, is that strong, leader is, excuse me, strong leadership is important to a healthy church. Strong leadership is essential to a healthy church. You're not gonna have a healthy church if you have weak leadership. If the people who are leading in a given church, in a local church, are weak men who give in to temptation every chance they get, and they are more interested in satisfying the crowd and getting the crowd to like them rather than getting God to like them and being satisfied in their position before the Lord, then you have leaders who will say things like, well, the people with all the money, they don't like that I'm gonna have to address this issue, so I'm just not gonna address this issue because I don't wanna make them upset. So what you see is strong leadership in the church being say, say, stepping up and saying, the way that we resolve this is we anoint or we identify men who can step up and take the role of leadership and shoulder the leadership because we have been called to this one thing and we know that there are other people called to this other thing and we're going to empower the fact that everybody has different gifts and we're gonna find people who have the gift of um, encouragement, we're gonna find people who have the gift of hospitality and we're gonna equip them and empower them to do this work so that we can do the work that God has called us to, okay? so. Luke is just giving us a little setup to help us understand the temperature of the church, the health of the church, before he gets into discuss um, Stephen. So, uh, as 
is you go through like verses five, six, and seven, we're introduced to the seven men that were, uh, that were picked. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse eight, but we see the seven men were picked. They were, uh, the apostles laid hands on them, not to impart a gift because they already had the gift, but to transfer symbolically the symbol of leadership. We saying we're the apostles and we're laying hands on you saying we trust you. So all of you guys, you can trust this guy, Stephen. He walks with the same authority. Um, and what you're about to find is Stephen standing up uh, when he is persecuted, when he is brought into trial and the Holy Spirit giving him the words to say um, in that moment. And I think just before we get into it, I think that's really important. Now, I started this series uh, with the assumption, letting you have the expectation that I'm a continuationist. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still at work in the church. And I think this is probably one of the greatest examples of that. If we're believing that Jesus told the apostles, hey, you don't have to worry about what to say when you stand before trials, because God's gonna give you the words to say. We saw that in Peter, but we're about to see it with Stephen. Stephen was a nobody. He was just a guy filled with the Holy Spirit. He was not an apostle. And we're about to see God speak through this guy exactly like Jesus promised the apostles. He's about to start reaping the same benefits that could, we could argue was only for these 12 guys. Now it's for this other guy. And so I would argue if it's for this other guy, it's gonna continue on to us too. And we also can pray to be filled with the Spirit so we can have wisdom. And we shouldn't, also shouldn't be worried about the words that we would say when we have to be uh, called into question or when people wanna uh, ask us about our faith. Don't be afraid about what you're gonna say. Trust that the Spirit is gonna speak through you, okay? So let's go into verse eight. We've identified this guy named Stephen. He's gonna stand out and Luke takes this guy and kind of makes him the focus. Uh, pick up in verse eight of, of chapter six. This is Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, who were those? The freedmen was a group of people who uh, were slaves at one time within Roman culture and then earned their freedom through working it out or their owners bought their freedom out and now they belong to their own personal synagogue. So the synagogue of the freedmen, the synagogue of the uh, Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, of those of Cilicia, uh, and of Asia, they rose up and they were disputing with Stephen. So they're arguing with Stephen. They're having these conversations with him about Jesus. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So you've got guys from five different synagogues trying to argue with Stephen and they just cannot compete with his brilliance. So when we say, when in verse eight, it says he was filled with grace and power and doing all kinds of great wonders and signs. One of the signs and wonders Luke's trying to get us to understand is that he was speaking with wisdom. That's one of the byproducts of being filled with the spirit. You speak with a wisdom that surpasses your normal earthly wisdom. You're saying things, things are coming out of your mouth that you didn't learn somewhere. And when heavenly wisdom competes with earthly wisdom, there's no competition. Heavenly wisdom wins every single time. And Stephen's not having debates with people online from a posture of earthly wisdom. Everything coming out of his mouth is Holy Spirit inspired. And that's why people can't compete with him. 
Well, it made them very angry in verse 11. It says, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard from him speaking uh, blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. And we've even heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth is gonna destroy this place, this temple. And he's gonna change the customs of Moses. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they're, they're accusing him of saying that, that the, the guy he follows, Jesus, is gonna tear down this temple. Now, this is false accusations because Jesus was not talking about the literal temple when he said, I'm gonna destroy it and rebuild it in three days. But he did say, I'm gonna destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. He just wasn't talking about the literal temple. And so when Stephen is having these debates with these people and he's referencing things that Jesus was saying, they're taking those things out of context and using them as a way to trap his language and bring him before this council. But Luke calls our attention to something really specific in verse 15. When he's standing before the council, everybody in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now he's drawing on another story from Exodus 34, 35, when Moses went up to the mountain and spent time with God. We're told that when Moses came down from the mountain after spending time with God, his face was shining so bright that nobody could even look at him. He had to cover his face when he was around other people because the impact of hanging out with God changed his appearance so drastically. And apparently that's not just an Old Testament thing because we're in the New Testament now. Luke is calling our attention to the fact that there is a way as followers of Jesus to be so surrendered and to treasure him so much and to behold him so often that it literally changes the way that you look. Now I'm not talking like you're walking around like your face is now a flashlight, but you put two people in front of me, one who battles depression and one who is completely surrendered to Jesus. And I guarantee you in 30 seconds, I can tell you which one follows Jesus and which one is, is, is Eeyore. <laughs> there is an outward evidence of hanging out with God. There is proof that you are on God's team. But it didn't matter to this council because they're still treating him like a criminal. And this is an important part for Luke to set up before we get into Stephen's message. Because what Luke is setting up is that you've got a guy who's literally standing there, his face is completely bright and shiny. There should be adequate evidence for this council to say this dude's been hanging out with God. Let's listen to what he has to say. But that's not what happens because they have other motives. Let's go to verse one. It says, the high priest said, hey, uh, are these things so? And Stephen said, now, just pause with me because this is long. This is 60 verses. And I'm gonna read all of it. 
And here's the reason why. Because when we start getting into our Bible reading plans, when we start seeing sections like this, this is, let's be honest, these are one of the sections we skip, right? Like, I don't want to read somebody's sermon. But if you skip stuff like this, you're going to miss not just the content of what he's saying, but the heart behind it. And what I want to do is I want to help you see what Stephen was saying through what he was saying and to help you understand that it wasn't actually Stephen saying it, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And that the same thing God can use you for. So let's get into it. Stephen opens his mouth and he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Oh, here we go. Man, we're going way back. And God said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God moved him from there into the land which you're now living. And yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. So he's saying, God did a thing and Abraham just said yes to it. But it was God working. God initiated this thing. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they will come out and worship me in this place that we're now standing, guys. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision so that Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, what is Stephen doing here? Stephen is not just giving a history lesson. He's giving counsel on the whole nation, and he's about to unleash the fury of what it looks like for generations of men to say, God chose me, but I don't choose him. God picked me, but if I'm honest, there's a lot of other things I'd pick besides him. But publicly declaring, I pick God. And he's gonna do it using the thing that they see as their greatest golden calf, for lack of a better expression, and that is their history to these great men. The men on this council took great pride that they were descendants of Moses and Abraham. They were descendants of Joseph. But the way that Stephen is gonna frame this message puts them in a very different position. Continue in verse nine. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Okay, do you see what he's doing here? We're dissecting his message and what he's saying is there was two groups in God's family. There was Joseph who was sent by God to do something tremendous and then there were the patriarchs and then there were the boys who sold their brother into slavery. So let's not pretend that we're all on good God's playing field just because we're connected to Moses because in this family there is absolutely a segregation between who God chose to save his people and the other brothers who constantly wanted to kill the brother that God sent to save them. 
Verse 10, and he rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh and king of Egypt who made ruler over Egypt and all the households. So now Joseph's in Egypt and the brothers are where? They're back in the land of famine. Verse 11, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. You see what he's doing? You're not the descendant of Joseph who saved his family. You're the descendant of the patriarchs who sold him into slavery. Your legacy isn't saving God's people. Your legacy is constantly doing the opposite of everything God wants to do at any given time. See, our fathers were rebellious. We are our fathers. But when Jacob heard that, there was grain in Egypt. He sent out our fathers on their vi first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent out and summoned Jacob, his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Okay, so I can imagine the council and be like, okay, uh, Stephen, do you have a point? Like you realize who you're teaching this to. We taught you this. I was your teacher in Hebrew school. Stephen, I taught you this. Why are you bringing this up now? What point are you making? Well, he's already started making his point. His point being that you on the council, you religious elite, love positioning yourselves as the one who's serving on God's team. You're God's man. You're part of the solution. You're part of the salvation. And you're not. You're part of the problem. Verse 17, he doesn't let up, he keeps going. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose e over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers, there it is again, to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, father's, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. Okay, well, we got it. We're, we're following you. We remember the story. No, no, but he keeps going. Our Mos and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. And when he was 40 years old, you guys remember what happened when he was 40 years old? It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Kind of like... Jesus came to his own. And they didn't accept him. They rejected him. What, what happened with Moses? Well, he saw one of his own beating another one of his own being wrong. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Who are you in this? You're not Moses. You're the guys who didn't understand what God was doing. You were the guys who, in verse 10, and on the following day when he appeared to them and they were quarreling, tried to reconcile with them, said, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him inside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? 
And this retort Moses, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. You're not Moses, you're the guy who shouts, who made you a ruler and a judge over us at the trial of Jesus? Verse 30, when 40 40 years had passed an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame and a fire and a bush. Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look and there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not take a look. I can imagine the guys on the council sitting there listening to the story and thinking, yeah, I'm with him. I, it, it's, I could imagine myself standing there with Moses, almost like a Moses. I, could, I would have been there, I would have taken my shoes off. What is Stephen saying? Stephen says, you were never there. You were still back in Egypt building uh, clay bricks because you kicked God's man out of his role of saving God's people. That's where you are. Verse 33, and then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. So now come, I'm gonna send you to Egypt. All right, God's gonna do a thing. He's gonna send Moses in to save the people. So when Moses, whom they rejected, came, the guys who said, who made you a ruler judge over this? This man God sent both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him. And when he came, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet just like me, that's Jesus, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him out of Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received with him the oracles giving to us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. Refused to obey the guy who spent time with God, who went up on the mountain, who saw him, whose face shined as bright as the sun. What did they do? They thrust him aside and in their hearts they returned to Egypt. And they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and he gave them over to worship the host of heaven. The host of heaven. That's referred also in 2 Kings, when King Manasseh took over. It says that he set up idols in the temple so the people would worship the hosts of heaven. Who are we talking about? There's two senses of this. The hosts of heaven is literally the celestial bodies that you see in the sky, worshiping the stars, worshiping astrology, worshiping the planets, but also the host of heaven biblically has a tie to angelic divine beings who left their place, rebelled against God, and came down in demonic form, were kicked out of heaven, and have now tried to set themselves up as gods over the nations. What did God do when God's people said, I don't want you? God gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. He said, if you want to worship some false demonic spirit that elevates itself to my status, I'm going to let you have what you want. I'm going to give you over to worshiping the hosts of heaven. 
as it was written in the book of prophets, did you bring to me the slain beasts and the sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took up the tent of Moloch, that was the name of one of those demonic hosts of heaven, and the star of the young god, Rephim. The images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Stephen is continuing to build this case like a pastor who knows what he's doing, structuring every argument at every stage, supporting everything with scripture, all driving to the same point. Our heritage is not faithfulness. Our heritage is worshiping false gods. And when God stands in front of you to speak the truth, you sentence him to death. And it's happening right now. Our fathers, verse 44, out of the wilderness, they had this tent. And just as he spoke to Moses, directed to him, make it according to the pattern they had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joseph when they disposed the nations that God drove out before them, our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So out of Moses, Joseph came in. He conquered the land. They set up this tent. Then David comes in. Verse 46, David found favor in the sight of God. And he asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David said, I want to build you a house. I want you living in a tent. I want to build a temple for you. But it was Solomon who ultimately built a house for him. So Stephen has now moved past Abraham, past Moses, past uh, Joshua. Now we're into David. Now we're into Solomon. And now we're talking about the temple, which is the reason why he's standing before them today. Because he was originally said, the reason why he's standing there is because he was told, the, 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 the lie was, this guy wants to overthrow the temple. He doesn't think God's in the temple. And now we finally come to the point where he addresses the temple and he says, you guys know how we got the temple, right? Solomon built that temple. And I'm here to tell you, God's not in that temple. So you wanna know what I think about God destroying the temple and rebuilding in the three days? Here's what I think about it. When God finally gave us a temple, you did what our fathers have always done, which is worship the temple rather than the God who's in the temple. And that's why he's no longer in the temple. Because this council likes doing one thing, and that is worshiping the things that you make with your own hands and slapping a God stamp on it and saying, look what the Lord has done when he is nowhere near it. And the evidence is the fact that I'm standing here before you today and you're about to do to me the same thing that you've always done. He continues in verse 48, yet the most high doesn't dwell in the houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All right, you ready for it? Verse 51, he's done preaching. This is his closing. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. You wanna know what I think about the temple? You know what I think about this council? I think you're doing the same thing that our fathers have always done, and that is murder 
the people that God sends to tell you the truth. Which of, your pro- which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, you didn't even keep it. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Yeah, you think? They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, that was polite. Because you don't want to get, you know, pebble dust on your good cloak. So they're taking off their garments in order to better chunk the rocks at Stephen. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I told you when we started today that we're going to be wrestling with this concept of persecution and how it may not be a, poss- a thing that we're aware of regularly now, but it is a thing that we should prepare for. And I argue that we should prepare for it because in God's just economy, the way he does things, the way he works, his resume has a long track record of using persecution to fulfill his purposes. And this is important, I want you to hear this. God ordains persecution to fulfill his purposes. I think there's lots of reasons why, but there's two main ones that I kind of want us to think about as we head out today. The first being that persecution is evidence that we're on God's team. You find this in John 15, 18 through 20, 2 Timothy 3, 12, um, uh, 1 Peter 4, 13 through 14. It's the reason why the disciples in Acts chapter five started rejoicing that they were considered worthy to experience persecution because persecution proves that you belong to Jesus. It is evidence that you're following him. But there's another reason why I think God ordains persecution, and it has to do with the indictment against the nations at the end of the age. You see this in Psalm 2, 1 through 2. You see this in John 1, 11. The idea being that at the end of the age, when people, nations, stand before God for an account of how they lived, no one will be able to say, we should be led into eternity because we were good people. Because at that moment, the indictment will be unrolled and right there at the top will be, you hated me and you murdered my people. 
No, but we were, all, we were good people. They were the ones who wouldn't shut up. Like we, we got rid of them so that we could have a better society and be, and be better people so we can get more people through that wide gate. They kept talking about this little narrow gate and it was just, it, it was deterring everything from, there was no progress because the Christians wouldn't shut up. So we got rid of them so that we could do the things that you called us to do. We're good people. No, he allows persecution because at the end of the age, that is one of the things that will be read on the indictment. You are not free of guilt because you murdered my people. You persecuted my church. Now, Stephen has just spent a long series of verses outlining for us a message that at its core has one central theme. We as people are predispositioned to think that we are right and everyone else is wrong. We are convinced that because we do these good things that we're on team God. But in reality, we're actually on the opposite team and we don't realize it. So in God's mercy, how does he reveal that? Through persecution. He allows persecution to take place in order to expose the hearts of the church people who say, well, I'm I'm here because I love Jesus, but the moment you tell me I don't have to come back, I will not be back. The moment that we're all person, you, you're telling me that, that I might be thrown in jail for this? I think I'll just stay home. I'll watch it on the couch at home. I'll just watch church on TV. Or I'll just stay at home and read my Bible. The moment persecution is presented, that starts exposing those who are on the council, judging the others, and positioning themselves as, I'm team Moses, I'm team Abraham but no, they're not, you're on the other team. How does the heart get exposed? God's grace ramps up persecution. So you've got two camps. You've got churches filled with people who realistically, if they're, if they're honest with themselves, they do not care about Jesus. They only care about satisfying their spouse's desire to go to church, or they only care about the social credibility that comes with following Jesus, or they only care about making their family happy, and they're only in church because they've always only ever been in church. How does that get exposed? Through persecution. And you've got the other folks who, like a Stephen, they love Jesus. They don't love this world. They care only for Christ. What is promised coming their way? Persecution. So this message has got two points. For the one in the church today who is only here because you feel like you've got to be here, persecution is the thing that is going to expose the fact that you don't really love and follow Jesus. But for those who are loving and following Jesus, persecution's coming your way too. How do you endure it? You endure it the same way Stephen endured it. You fix your eyes on Jesus and you ask him to fill fill you with his spirit. That's it. 
That's all there is. The message today either convicts your heart that you are realistically positioned for sitting on the council and not speaking the truth, or you are standing there speaking the truth to a council of religious people who don't want to hear what you have to say and what's coming your way is persecution. So go ahead and start preparing now. How do you prepare? You look up to Jesus. You get filled with his spirit and you let him do with you whatever he wills. And this is the last thought I want you to have before we pray and we close. And it's this. As a Christian, ultimately what it means is that you have decided that your life is not your own. It has been bought with a price and now he owns it. And that means that he can do anything he wants with your life for his glory. And if that's not where you are, it's where you need to be. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.